So, my favorite movie, Practical Magic. I did not know this. I'm sure people know this. There's a book. There's a book? There's a book. How did I not know there was a book? Right. Like, and this is the actual book. The, I mean, same synopsis. For more than 200 years, the Owens women have been blamed for everything that has gone wrong in their Massachusetts town. Jillian and Sally have endured that fate as well as children. The sisters were forever outsiders, taunted, talked about, pointed at. Their elderly aunts almost seemed to encourage the whispers of witchery with their musty house and their exotic concoctions and their crowd of black cats. But all Jillian and Sally wanted was to escape. One will do so by marrying the other by running away, but the bonds they share will bring them back almost as if by magic. So, um, for anyone who wants to know, this is a book by Alice Hoffman. It is. The movie is wonderful, so I have high expectations for the book. When you are done reading it, let me know how it is. For sure. I might remember to read it. Why does it feel like it's been two weeks since we recorded? Um, I don't know, seeing as it's only been five days. I know. Because this has been the longest week of hell. That's 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 why. Yeah. 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 Hi, that's Rachel and I'm Grace. There's dog fur on my face. <laughs> Ooh, it rhymes. Welcome back <laughs> to Myths and Misfortunes, <laughs> where we rhyme about... Dog hair. Long-haired dogs, guys. <laughs> yeah. Thank you <laughs> for joining us. <laughs> oh, God. Just eating dog fur. I don't think that's edible. It's not. It's not. Okay. Um. So, where are we this week? Gainesville, Georgia. Woo! Also, explain to me... Why I suddenly forgot that we were in Georgia. Okay, that look on your face just made me think that you did Gainesville, Florida. And no. I was like, that's fine. I can do, I can just do my history. Okay. Gainesville, Georgia. Yes. Where the devil goes. Gainesville, Georgia. Ooh. So. Why do we always do that? Ooh. Uh, anxiety. Valid. Yeah. Fair valid. So my sources are Wikipedia Ooh. and an Intercontinental Cry article by Courtney Parker and Jeff Corntassel. I thought you were going to say an interwebs article. <laughs> an interwebs article. <laughs> an article I found on the interwebs. That is a thing that I would do. <laughs> so, the area where Gainesville is now once belonged to the Cherokee and Creek natives, and to be honest, at first I couldn't find a lot about the native people Mm -hmm. in the area on the first few sources that I found, and it all started with the founding of the original colonizer settlement, Mule Camp Springs, in the early 1800s. Yep. The county itself, Hall County, was organized in December, uh, on December 15th, 
1818. And in you'll December 15th. <laughs> Somewhere in that day, like, like at 5 p.m., 3, I don't know. Oh, now see, I was thinking like 12.48. Noon. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mule Camp Springs was renamed Gainesville April 21st, 1821. It was named in honor of General Edmund P. Gaines, selected to be the county seat and chartered by the Georgia General Assembly on November 30th, 1821. So there was a gold rush in the area in the 1830s that resulted in an increase in the number of settlers. So what I really want to talk about in the 1830s takes us back to the Cherokee. In 1830, a Cherokee man named George Corntassel was charged with the murder of another Cherokee man at Talking Rock two things about Talking Rock. One, it was it was 50 miles from Hall County where he was taken to be tried. And two, the Cherokee Nation was considered sovereign by U.S. law, so he should have been tried in a Cherokee court. Mm-hmm. Another thing I should mention is that in 1828, two years prior, Georgia passed a series of laws which explicitly took away the rights of Cherokees to testify against white settlers in a court of law. Because, of course, they did. Of course. Of course. So, he was tried and convicted by a jury of 12 white men and was sentenced to execution. He appealed, and it was shot down by the de facto Georgia Supreme Court. He appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court accepted the appeal and issued a mandate forbidding his execution. Mm. The court also ordered the state to produce the records of the trial, ordering... Uh, then Georgia Governor George Glimmer to appear before them. Glimmer. He responded by having the judge on George Corntassel's case refuse the Supreme Court's demand for trial records and proceeded to have George Corntassel executed by hanging. Nice. And there's going to be a bit more about this in a bit. But After the Civil War, Gainesville began to grow. The addition of a railroad brought even more people by 1898. Textile mills were the primary driver of the economy, as well as the railroad. With the amount of money the city made from the mills, Gainesville became the first city south of Baltimore to install street lamps. Okay. Which is so weird to think about. Yeah. City services began in Gainesville on February 22nd, 1873, with the election of a city marshal. How quaint. Very quaint. In 1843, Gainesville contributed to the war effort by leasing the airport to the U.S. government for $1. The military used it as a naval air station for training purposes. I'd like to lease an entire airport for a dollar. Yeah. (laughs) After World War II, a businessman named Jesse Jewell started the poultry industry in North Georgia. Chickens have since been the state's largest agricultural crop. This is a $1 billion a year industry, um, and that makes Gainesville the poultry capital of the world. Oh, cool. Yeah. So this is where we get back into George Corntassel. In 1966, someone had the truly terrible idea of holding Gainesville's first annual crafts festival, which normally I would be all over. I mean, you know me. Yeah. But they named it the Corn Tassel Festival. What was their reasoning? There is no reasoning. For every source, there it's it says 
there there's no source of why they decided to name it that and it's held in the exact spot where he was executed every year now i i I would get it if it was in like remembrance of him but i i have a feeling that's not the case okay okay so the name was changed in 1993 when the illegal murder of george corntassel cat court Cat Tassel was rediscovered. Most people had no idea the festival they were celebrating was named after a disgusting act of racism and murder. And to be honest, okay, so when they found out, they didn't decide that it was a gross act of racism and murder. They said, oh, we, we don't want our festival to be named after a murderer. And that's why they changed it. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, they had no... Some of them had no idea, and the people who did just didn't think it was what it... Did, uh, acted yeah. like it was not what it was. Yeah. 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 And, and it's like, it's it kind of reminds me of how, like, even though most Americans know about Thanksgiving, it's, an, it's a, still a national holiday, so I shouldn't be so surprised, but... Mm. So it was renamed to the Mule Camp Festival, which apparently honored the Cherokee trading post that operated in the same place. And this is still kind of a questionable thing to do, considering the celebration continues to occur on the site of an illegal execution on stolen Cherokee land. Mm-hmm. And again, most people who live there either seem to not know this or ignore it. And... I do want to mention I got most of this info from that Intercontinental Continental Cry article by Courtney Parker and Jeff Corntassel titled Hall County Still Gathers to Celebrate a Hanging That Sparked the Trail of Tears. Okay. It was such a good article and I think everyone should go read it. I Amazing. Go read it when you finish this episode. Go read it. Yes, go read it when you finish this episode. So... All I have left for my history is that the city has sponsored new social activities, including the Spring Chicken Festival in 2003, Art Square Gathering in 2004, and Dredge Fest in 2008, which was really just a bunch of, from what I understood, a bunch of trucks coming together to dredge a lake? I'm not entirely sure. Very, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm still giggling about the Spring Chicken Festival. I know, it's cute. It's adorable. It's like Chicken Little. (laughs) 2008 saw the reopening of the Fair Street Neighborhood Center, uh, the reopening of the Linwood Water Reclamation Facility Grand, and the completion of the Longwood Park Fishing Pier. And that's pretty much the end until we get to my story. Okay. Okay. So. Well, then we're going to move on to my story, which is the unsolved, just going to lead into the disappearance and murder of Elaine Nix. That won't be the only one. That's okay. Yeah. Um, so my sources are morbidology.com. Morbidology is a podcast, if you all don't know. I didn't know, but it sounds super cool. 13wmaz.com, reddit.com, truecrimediva.com, and wtol.com. I have a lot of sources for mine, too. Okay. I've got five. Oh, I guess it just sounded like more. It sounded like a lot, yeah. So, Elaine Nix was a spitfire of a young woman. She was 18 in 1999 and had just recently dropped out of school. She took up a job as a hostess at the Up the Creek restaurant 
and was seemingly setting herself straight. At least Mm -hmm. that's how her mother described it. She was setting plans to become a nurse and a mother in, you know, the, the future. Yeah. She was charismatic and lit up any room that she walked into, and that's exactly what happened when Elaine, her boyfriend, and her brother walked through the front door of her Gainesville, Georgia home on Sunday, September 19th, 1999, after church. Uh, She was glowing when she sat down and told her mother that she had been rededicated into the church, absolving all of her sins. However, she must have caught a bug or something when she was out at church because the following day she laid in bed sick until her mother, Becky, woke her up in order to make dinner together. While doing so, she received a call from her boyfriend's best friend. Apparently, Elaine and her boyfriend had been on and off again several times, you know, as as you do as an 18-year-old. Uh... And unfortunately, a lot of people fall into that pattern. I was one of them. But, you know, the two were still talking on the phone, hanging out together, and just in general, just doing things, being teenagers. Now, Elaine's boyfriend was a boy named Millie. Billy Millwood. He was also 18, but was living... (laughs) Millie Billwood. (laughs) That's what I tried to say. (laughs) He was okay, also, yeah, he was also 18 and, um, unfortunately living 30 miles away in Cleveland, which resulted in a lot of long distance phone calls from her parents' house. This racked up the monthly phone bill to about $75 in one month. Yeah. Yeah. So at this oh, point. I remember those days. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Gosh, and now long distance is like a thing of the past unless you're trying to call out of the country. Yeah. Even then, that's going to be obsolete at some point. I mean, fingers crossed. Hopefully. Hopefully. At this point, her mother blocked any long distance calls from their home phone, which forced Elaine to drive up the street two and a half miles to Zach's food rack and use the pay phone there if she wanted to talk to Billy. Oh, so, what would happen is if he wanted to talk to her, he would send a message to Elaine's pager, and then she would drive the two miles to make the call for only 35 cents, which, let's face it, even now, 35 cents is a whole heck of a lot better than $75. Yeah. So, um, you know, that same night that she was, you know, sick and making dinner with her mom, while she was on the phone with Billy's best friend, her mother had heard her say that no one would do all that she did for Billy. She then received a message on her pager reading, F-U, comma, B. Oh. And this pissed Elaine off, rightfully so. I don't know what they were arguing, arguing about, about yeah. but you, you, don't, you don't page that. So she threw on a white t-shirt, khaki pants, and white and blue gym shoes and then left her parents' house at about 11 p.m. to call Billy. She pulled into the gravel parking lot five minutes later and was on the phone for over an hour with him. Um, It was about 1 o'clock in the morning before they actually hung up the phone. Oh, man. And this is the last known time that anyone is known to have spoken to her. A few hours later, while patrolling, an officer noticed Elaine's 1986 Toyota in the parking lot, 
The hood was still warm, but no one was in sight. He left the scene, but did not follow up on the abandoned vehicle, which you you do have to think about is not actually out of the norm. People leave their cars in parking lots all the time overnight. Even yeah. now. And there is a place near my grandma's out in Bardstown where it's literally just a carpool location. Yeah. So people literally leave their cars there all day and sometimes overnight. Yeah. So, so you know, the officer here is in no fault of his own for not looking into it because it's completely normal. Um, when the sun rose the next morning, Elaine's mother was also not surprised that she could not find Elaine in her bed. Elaine apparently had the habit of running away and staying at her friend's or with Billy, so it wasn't unusual for her to be out of the house. Yeah. However, the following day after that, when Elaine did not show up for her shift at the restaurant, this caused some panic, obviously. Her parents, Becky and David, began the search for her, finding her car exactly where the officer had found it the night before in Zach's parking lot. Next to the payphone... With her keys still in the ignition, oh no, purse and Marlboro lights sitting on the passenger seat. Ugh. Like the way her car was left, she did not leave it intentionally. Yeah. And anyone who smokes would not leave their cigarettes. Like you wouldn't leave your car. Okay, look. You would yeah. not leave your car in a parking lot with the keys in the ignition mm-hmm. with your purse and I guess if you smoke your cigarettes and yeah uh was her pager not there her pager was there it was in her purse yeah um so then becky decided to just investigate the scene herself yeah there's no way a teenager or a 19 year old or 18 year old would forget their pager no Especially no. not in 1999. No, the, no. It's like now the cell phones are attached to the hip. You don't you don't just leave that anywhere. I almost left mine in a bathroom and I panicked. Right. So Becky questioned the store clerk, asking how long the car had been parked out front. To which the clerk replied, "It had been there since she had clocked in that morning." When the police did not take Elaine's car into evidence, Becky then drove it home with David following behind. And this unfortunately potentially contaminated any evidence left behind that could have led to answers. Why wouldn't they take... Because she ran ran away a lot? She would take her car. She would take her... That pager, I, like. yeah, I will touch on that shortly. But pretty much, okay. the the police were like, "She's a troubled child. She ran. She just ran away. She's gonna turn up." At, she would take her car. Mm. She would take her car. She would take her pager. She would take her cigarette. She would take her purse. I mean, it's just moving on. Upon arriving home with a car, Elaine's parents called the Hall County Police Department. The officer on the other end of the phone informed them that they normally don't file a missing person report until a person has been missing for a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. which which is true, unfortunately. However, Becky claimed that the officer did give her a case number for follow-up. Uh, Becky and David then began creating handwritten missing persons flyers and posted them on stop signs near the store and along every light pole they could find on the way and back. However, as quickly as the couple were placing the signs, they were being ripped down. Um, 
Right. The following weekend, family and friends formed a search party in an effort to find her. They congregated at Zach's and retraced everywhere they knew that she had been in the moments before her disappearance. Police then conducted roadblocks and questioned people. However, due to her history of running away from home, they ultimately chalked Elaine up to being just a runaway. Wow. I don't like that. (laughs) On Wednesday, September 29th, the Nix family and a few extended family members had gathered with a preacher to pray for Elaine's safe return home when the doorbell rang. It was the Hall County Police Detective with some bad news for the family. Elaine had been found, but not in the way that they wanted. An industrial cutting dye employee had been smelling a foul, putrid odor emanating from the woods behind the industrial park for days. Eventually, curiosity got the best of them because they went to investigate the smell. They had made their way through the woods to the edge of I-85, where they stumbled upon the nude body of Elaine laying in the fetal position. Only 17 miles from where she was last known to be. That's a little far, but not not that far. It's not that far. Her body was so far into the decomposition process that identification was based solely on dental records and from what remained of her frog tattoo on her ankle and her butterfly tattoo on her back. And, oddly enough, while she was found without any clothing, her jewelry she was wearing had remained on her and... The clothing was never recovered. Uh, Yeah. Due to extensive exposure to the sun, examiners were unable to identify the cause of death, only that she appeared to have died six to nine days after her initial disappearance. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Though it was clear this was not an accident. Yeah. However, there were no gunshot wounds, stab wounds, or signs of strangulation. So... I feel like if she was far enough into the decom process, it might be hard to tell some of. Those. But also, it, even like, I mean, with stab wounds, would stab, obviously pretty stab easily. I mean, we're talking wounds. about like, well, there would still be. I mean, there would still be bruising that would be visible. I just, yeah. But anyway, because there were no none of these wounds that are typically associated with violence, an investigation really wasn't done by the police. After she was discovered. In fact, the only investigation that was done were by her very devout parents. And they've spent so much time searching for her in and around the area that she was found. Talking to literally anyone who would, who would listen and talk to them. Eventual examination of surveillance footage from Zach's showed a small dark colored pickup truck pull into the parking lot during Elaine's conversation with Billy. However, since his camera was only facing the front of the store and not towards the payphone, this is the only footage they have. And, you know, you can't really see a whole lot on that. Um, Some speculation point to her boyfriend, Billy, being the culprit behind her disappearance and murder. However, phone records do show that he was, in fact, home during the entire conversation. So it wasn't like he had one of those cell phones from 1999, like the big bricks. Right. And just driving along. No, he was home. In 2005, Elaine's father, David, claimed that a man told him he saw four men dragging Elaine away from Zach's. 
While David refused to reveal who the informant was, he did turn the information over to the police. Why would this person not have reported this originally? I I can't answer that. It wasn't included in any of the sources that I used or any of the sources that I found. The only thing that I can probably think of is that this person connected the dots after the fact. Yeah, or they were doing something unsavory. Less than legal, yeah. Yeah. Then in 2010, apparently two identical letters were sent to Gainesville women named Becky Nix and Jennifer Boyd. These names were significant because Becky Nix is the name of Elaine's mother, Mm. and Jennifer Boyd was the name of her best friend who helped in all of the search efforts and, you know, and doing anything to find her. Anyway, the letters arrived to the wrong women. Correct names, but wrong women. Nice. But thankfully, these two women knew that they were not the intended recipients and did get the letters to the right people. However, I'm not really sure how great that is, because these letters apparently describe what happened to Elaine that night. Apparently, three people had been at a trailer, you know, just hanging out, partying, drinking, when they decided to go out to drink. On their way, they spotted a young woman at a payphone. They approached her and offered her some money for services, but she refused. They then grabbed her and drove around. The letters did not go into detail about what happened after she was grabbed, but stated where possible evidence could be found. However, the Hall County Police Office claimed that these letters were a hoax and that what was... Oh, I'm sorry. Go. And that what was written in the letters did not match with the facts of the case. However, if she had died six to nine days after her, her initial disappearance, would it not make sense that someone picked her up drove her off somewhere right i mean that just makes sense to me i guess in their um investigation they determined there was no but that wouldn't mm. it's it's a it's a cluster but basically this is literally all that they have on the case You know, the family did not get to have an open casket funeral because she was just so far into the decomp process. So, you know, there wasn't that proper grieving process. And Mm -hmm. I just, I feel so bad for the family. So there is a $5,000 reward in this case if you help solve the case. Anyone with information can call the Gwinnett County Police tip line at 770-513-5390. And the family, like, really requests, if you know absolutely anything, call in. They need answers. Yeah, like, no matter how small you think it might be. Right. Like, please call. And that is the disappearance and unsolved murder of Elaine Nix. Wow. That was the one story in the area that I didn't look into at all. Okay, so your story, I do remember from the notes, is Lake Lanier. Lanier? Lanier. Yeah. Okay. So like Rachel said, my story is Lake Lanier. Or is the good old-fashioned country folk, Lake Lanier. 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 Lanier.
Anyway, my sources are Wikipedia, thestoddardfirm.com, travelnoir.com, cnn.com, gwinnettcitizen.com, onlyinyourstate.com, inthenow.com, and two Reddit threads. So, Lake Lanier, which one is actually Lake Sydney Lanier, named after a Confederate veteran and poet who wrote Song of Chattahoochee. Chattahoochee. Yes. And two is actually a reservoir that provides water to Atlanta and some other cities and states, which after this story, I don't know how I would feel about that personally. Mm -mm. Um, Mm -mm. What I came up with trying to find a story, just mm -mm. Yeah. Mm -mm. Nope. Yeah. It was created in 1956 when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers dammed the Chattahoochee River near Buford and flooded the river's valley for hydroelectricity and flood control. Mm -hmm. Prior to Lake Lanier being filled with water, a team of archaeologists from the University of Georgia excavated the Summerroar. Summerora. The Summerroar Mounds, northeast of Buford Dam, the they were some of Georgia's oldest pyramid-like platform mounds of earth. There was also pottery associated with the Swift Creek and Napier cultures, oh, cool. and a lot of the mound construction actually occurred during uh, the between 600 A.D. and 900 A.D. Wow. Yeah, there was also um, Woodstock culture occupation of the site that began around 900 A.D. and lasted for a century. It super interesting stuff. However, all flooded. Oh. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, it's super bummer. The lake is a super popular recreational attraction, like the most popular Duh. North Georgia place. Like, yeah. They I mean, get bodies, bodies of water tend to just attract a lot of people. Yeah, but um, not sure this one should. Just gonna say. Mm-hmm. Around se- they get around 7 million visitors per year. That's a lot. Um, that's a lot. In some years, it gets up to 12 million. That's a lot. Yeah. And during the 1996 Summer Olympics, Lake Lanier served as the venue for the rowing and kayaking medal competitions. A lot of people say you shouldn't go here. There's just so much. So, straight off, this place is said to be haunted as fuck and pretty dangerous in certain areas. The water is murky, the lake floor drops randomly, and the bottom is covered with tree trunks, old structures, and other debris that can, um... Hurt you? Get you... Yeah, it can hurt you. You can get, um, like, twisted up and stuff, and it can even knock boats off course. Like... Yep. Yeah. It took... Five years for the lake to fill to the intended water level, during which the U.S. government purchased more than 50,000 acres of farmland, which displaced 250 families, many who actually lived on their land for generations. Oh. As well as 15 businesses and relocated 20 cemeteries, along with the corpses. Yeah. Some families Is later. That, do you want ghosts? That's how you get <laughs> ghosts. I knew, I knew, I knew you were gonna say that. Um, some of the families later regretted their decision once they realized they couldn't survive on the what on what the government offered them. And while the core identified and marked and moved marked graves, it's likely that some of the unmarked ones were left behind. In fact, in 2017, one local diver, Buck Buchanan, told a local 
told told a local media told <laughs> <laughs> a singular uh, local a singular media. local media he told local media that he sometimes felt body parts in the lake during his excursions uh, down there he said you it. reach out into the dark and you feel an arm or a leg and it doesn't move that's creepy stop <laughs> he it. says that's creepy <laughs> Are you sure it's not just, like, a really, really, like, wet branch or a log? There's there's a difference. Uh, Yeah. Uh, They uprooted trees and hauled them away during the whole process of moving everything out. Um, Barns and wooden structures that could float and endanger watercraft were moved. Major infrastructures such as bridges and water intakes, most of them were relocated, but not all. But a lot of roads and buildings, including homes, were left as is, like just an underwater abandoned ghost town. I wonder if boat insurance covers running into the roof of a house. (laughs) (laughs) It actually, it doesn't go down that low, I don't think. I think the house is, um, I don't think that it goes down to, like, the roofs. Okay. (laughs) Or I don't think that... Certain levels of the lake are low enough for that. I'm just saying, because I know how low our pond gets when we've mm-hmm. had, like, a really dry summer. Like, the summer was super dry. Yeah, I think I mentioned that. Oh, yeah. Done. Yeah, okay. Uh, people go and explore and videotape this. Yes. yes. Uh, baby dolls are still left in houses. There are cars still left down there. Everything is just, like, it's, like, it's frozen in time. And some frozen people have actually... time and water. Walter. 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 Uh, you can take a fish-finding sonar out near Brown's Bridge and see the old bridge underwater, which actually looks really cool. Mm-hmm. There are cables, uh, towers, lanes, and everything. And over the decades, the when the lake's water levels drop during a drought, there are submerged roads, tire parts, and other artifacts that are exposed, which is, I'm sure it's really eerie to see. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, um... Lake Lanier is potentially one of the most haunted lakes, and the lake is even considered to be cursed, not only because of what was left behind, but the amount of people who have died there since the lake was made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my sources range from between 160 to 600 possible deaths since 1994. I think the most recent count that I saw was actually a little over 200. Yeah. I don't know and where the, story- the 600 one came from. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. know where that came from. Yeah, and the story I was going to do happened on Lake Lanier. Yeah. Lanier. Lanier. Hey, I'll mention it. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. There have been drownings, boating accidents, and the occasional diver that, uh, diver, the occasional driver that drove off the road into the lake. Uh, the lake is 80 to, like, if um, from, like, higher points or just, like, swerved off a bridge into the water. Yeah. The lake is about 80 to 100 feet deep, which makes searching for missing bodies very difficult. Mm-hmm. But some of the drownings seem to be odd because they're not all just, you know, drunk people who weren't being careful or really bad storms or anything like that. Some of them were really strong swimmers who were near the shore in the middle of a bright sunny day with calm waters. Yep. For instance, <laughs> uh, Reddit user Midwest Product said that in 2014, their friend and a guy were sitting on pool noodles in 
gay cove right off some guy's swim platform just talking there this person's friend decided to get out and the other guy decided he wanted to dive down for a second before getting out he did and he never resurfaced oh yeah it took dive crews six hours to find him and he was just laying at the bottom not tangled on anything just laying on the bottom that mm. yeah i don't like that they said he likely got disoriented and swam in the wrong direction and their friend is still haunted by it because nothing seemed wrong and then the next second he was just dead. But but then my question is if he swam in the wrong direction, why didn't he Why did he not float? Not back float. Up? Yeah. I don't know. I don't mm, know. and this happens a lot, so I feel like there's like a really scientific like reasoning behind it because it doesn't just happen in lakes, it happens in the ocean too. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's, like, a water pressure thing. Maybe, maybe something having to do with the currents. Because I did find a thing that said that the currents were a little strong Stronger. in some spots. Okay. Um, I, f- I saw this video on YouTube that I didn't include in this, but it was somebody who was in Lake Lanier <clears> and they <throat> were with, um, I think they were with their family or something, or I don't know. And they were in one spot, and the next thing they knew, they were 20 feet out, and the current was just moving them really fast. Yeah. So, that kind of explains something that comes up in a second. Oh, on top of that, the guy that drowned came came out there on a completely different boat, and the boat's owner was an older, wealthy man with a Facebook group where, like, younger guys could join and, like, get free rides out onto the lake. Mm-hmm. And the guy who drowned got a ride from this guy and left his wallet and ID in his car in the parking lot. And it was his first time out on the lake, so knew, no one even knew where he was. And he was with John Doe for a while. And the person who posted this comment didn't mention who his name, like, mention his name or anything like that. And I tried to find it, and I think I might have found it, but I'm not sure if it completely fits. Okay. So I just I just left just it. Leave, yeah, just leave it out. Unlike that man who was found in the same spot, sometimes people who drown fairly close to shore have had their bodies turn up miles away in different areas of the lake, which, like I said, is probably due to currents. Currents, yeah. People who say they have almost drowned report feeling as if they're being pulled underwater or held mm-hmm. under by an unseen force completely against their will, or having the a feeling of, like the air suddenly like leaving their lungs like causing a feeling of exhaustion you know the sort of feeling yeah, you get when yeah. like you get the wind knocked out of you yeah like that I'm, i know yeah there are also stories of random waves boats and kayaks just sinking or tipping over for no reason and even boats that hit something in the water only for there to be nothing there when it's investigated oh, mm, i don't like that yeah there's also ghost stories obviously one you're gonna love it. Gonna love it. Okay. And by love it, I mean probably hate it. So oh. this story involves reports of a mysterious appearing and disappearing raft lit by a lantern on a pole with a shadowy figure that uses a pole to push and pull it along, which in and of itself is kind of odd because like I said so previously it's death. You couldn't possibly. But like it's it's weird to think about it because like I said, it can get up to 100 feet in depth, so a pole ain't gonna cut it. <laughs> so uh, Little little did you know, at the end of the pole is an oar. He just... Sure. Yeah. Um, you would have to 
move it both sides. No, he's just spinning in circles. (laughs) Unless you're in a very specific, like, current, I think. I don't know. I don't, I don't water. just going in circles. Anyway, so this story goes, one cold autumn night around 1 a.m., two fishermen saw this raft while fishing in a rowboat. Mm-hmm. The raft was about a, half a mile away and at a point where the water was about 45 feet deep. At one point, the figures shouted at the men and jumped off the raft into the freezing water to swim towards them. So yeah, it's death. Obviously, they're freaked out and they pull their fishing lines trying to get the hell out of there because like, what the fuck? And all of a sudden, the lantern on the raft goes out. Oh no, that's yeah. creepy. The men shone like shine their spotlight out across the water, but there was no sign of the figure in the water or the raft. Even creepier. Yes. Fun. Mm-hmm. So this next story is thought to be the original reason why people think the lake is haunted, other than you know the stuff that's underneath. Yeah. In April of 1958, a young woman who worked at Riverside Military Academy, uh, Delia Parker Young, and her friend Susie Roberts decided they wanted to go out for the night and headed to the Three Gables, which I assume is a bar, in Susie's 1954 Ford. When they didn't return, the only things the subsequent investigation turned up was that they had visited a gas station and left without paying, and skid marks across Lanier Bridge on Dawsonville Highway. Oh. Yeah. It was assumed that the car skidded off the road, but divers weren't able to find the car. Eighteen months later, a fisherman named C.A. Simpson came across a severely decomposed body thought to be Delia. Oddly, the body was missing two toes, the left foot, and both hands. Mm, no. No. The cause of death was inconclusive, and they couldn't figure out why the body parts were missing, which could be predation, but, I mean... It, well, like, you, if, if the currents were strong enough, it's it's not unreasonable to think and, that... Yeah, it could be just, like, bumping A body into part stuff. could have yeah. just been ripped off due to decomp. Um, but they couldn't really tell if it was Delia or not, because there, at the time, obviously, no DNA testing. Yeah. So... They, it was buried in an unmarked grave at Alta Vista Cemetery. The body of Susie Roberts and the car were still missing despite repeated searches until November of 1990 when construction crews were dredging the bottom of the lake to expand a linear bridge. They discovered a rusted 1954 Ford and there was only one body. So badly decomposed it was unidentifiable, but the purse, rings, and the watch on the body helped identify Susie Roberts. Mm. So they decided that the other body had to be Delia, Delia. Parker Young. Mm-hmm. So they changed the headstone, and Susie Roberts was buried beside her. Even though this probably isn't even remotely accurate, I'm just imagining that they're like lesbians in love, and that they're finally together, buried side by side. So like it's Aww. me, but like, it's probably not. I ship it. <laughs> I ship it. Uh, <laughs> it said that. A ghostly woman became... Uh, so this became part of another urban legend within Lake Lanier. and said, A ghostly woman, dressed in a blue dress and missing her hands, can sometimes be seen walking up and down the length of Lanier Bridge. And mm-hmm. because she was wearing blue that night and because her hands were missing, it's thought to be Delia. Yeah. According to those who claim to have seen the ghost, 
which has since become known as the Lady of the Lake, Delia's restless spirit seems to be searching for her missing hands. Searching the bottom of the lake, Delia. Uh, one of the deadliest years... Oh, I'm just going to skip forward a bit. Okay. A lot of it. A lot of it. A lot of it. One of the deadliest years for drownings was 2011 with 17 deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But three incidents in 2012 are some of the most remembered. First were the deaths of nine-year-old Jake Prince and his 13-year-old brother Griffin, who were riding in a pontoon boat out on the lake and were struck and killed by a speeding boat. Oh. Yeah. Just a few no. weeks later, 11-year-old Kyle Grover, who's actually the son of Usher's ex-wife, Tamika Foster, Aww. was struck while riding an inner tube by a family friend riding a jet ski, and unfortunately, he did pass away a few weeks later in the hospital. It's horrible. Um, yeah. A 15-year-old friend of the boy was <clears throat> also seriously injured in the same accident, but he recovered. August 24th, 2012... So, a lot of these cases, um, a lot of the things that people talk about with this is, like I said, that Lake Lanier is cursed, and even living on the lake proximity. or around it, yeah, in close mm-hmm. proximity, um, can have an effect on you in some sort of way. So, that's what the next two stories are about. Um, August 24th. 2012, 16-year-old Hannah Trulove disappeared from her apartment complex right next to the lake in Gainesville. Her body was found the next day by the side of the lake, having been stabbed multiple times, but somehow it wasn't clear if that's what killed her. Mm-hmm. Um, although they did rule drowning out. Shortly before Even though the... she was laying in the water. Actually, she was laying right next to the water from what I read. Oh, right next to the water? A couple yeah. of my sources said in the water. Hmm. My sources and that, different. And that it had rained, so a lot of the evidence had washed away. Okay. Yeah. My, why do none of mine have that? Because I was I got the short version and you were that, going in yeah. depth, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, if you all can't tell, I was going to cover this story before I was going to cover the other one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, shortly before her death, Hannah tweeted about being unhappy with her life at the apartment complex and how she was afraid that she had a stalker, with mm-hmm. one tweet saying, so scared right now. Hannah's father yep. later claimed that she never mentioned uh, being under any stress or acting any differently in the days leading up to her death. Which, oh. I mean... Mm. If if you look at a lot of her tweets, though, some something's going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I understand sometimes parents can be a bit oblivious, I guess, but I don't know. Especially when your daughter is 16 and you scroll far enough back in her tweets, her parents are going to want to be oblivious. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, despite an exhaustive investigation and numerous interviews with neighbors, none of whom saw anything, authorities Mm -hmm. still have no suspects and no leads in the case, so it is still unsolved. Yep, and one of the theories is that she was pregnant by a married man, and he had to off her because she was going to tell his wife. I didn't have enough room to put that, so thanks. Because I wanted to You're shorten welcome. it. I wanted to shorten it to seven pages, so thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> One of the most intriguing and kind of confusing deaths linked with Lake Lanier is Kelly Nash. 
a 25-year-old man who went missing from his home in Buford, Georgia on January 5th, 2015. Okay. It's, yeah. Early that morning, around 4 a.m., he woke up feeling sick, like, had, um... Like, sick. Yeah, like, fluish type stuff. Oh, no. And he told his girlfriend, Jessica, that he felt terrible and should probably go see a doctor before going back to bed. Okay. But when Jessica woke up at 7.30, he was gone. Mmm. Even weirder, his phone, wallet, keys, and ID had all been left behind. And those are all things that you would take with you. Absolutely. When he still hadn't returned that night, police were called in and it was discovered that a 9mm pistol was missing from the house, but none of his other belongings were missing or out of place. There was a massive search involving the police, family and friends, and cadaver dogs. There was a $50,000 reward offered for any information, but it wasn't until a month later, on February 8th, that his body was found in Lake Lanier by a fisherman. Mm. He was still wearing his pajamas he had been wearing that morning. There were no major wounds to the body other than a single gunshot wound to the head. It's completely unsolved and no one can figure out why he would have left in the middle of the night like that or how he got to the lake or if it was suicide or if it was murder who would have had a motive if it was murder um i saw some suspicion on the girlfriend but yeah that was gonna be my next question you said shot in the head was he shot in the head like he was you know committing suicide or was he shot like execution style i I didn't find anything but um continue yes (laughs) Along with mysterious ghosts and unsolved murders, local fishermen insist that there are huge catfish in the lake, which reportedly reach size of, like, over seven feet. Giant catfish. Giant catfish. Yes. That would make the best, Yeah, how they like, say they're in, like, um, Cumberland Lake and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what if they're sturgeons, though, and not catfish? Well, so... Oh, am I in a theory? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> so they're, um, so they get up to seven feet long or bigger and are said uh, to swallow dogs that get too close to the water and even attack swimmers and divers. Mm-hmm. And there's this legend where a truck full of live chickens drove off the Thompson Bridge in the late 80s and sank to the bottom and divers were sent to examine the wreckage and found catfish the size of a 12 year old boys feasting on the chickens like swallowing them whole Mm, no well there are other stories about fishermen hooking giant catfish and having their boats dragged around the lake so you know it might not just be gossip or a legend though it's said that they are most often sighted around Buford Dam, and there are actually divers who swear that they have seen these huge catfish, which were so terrifyingly large that the divers never want to go back there. Mm-hmm. So some say the lake isn't haunted and there's no curse. The only danger is just a bunch of drunk rednecks out on the water, which always spells danger. Others are convinced of the hauntings, but either way, author and historian Lisa Russell says... The real haunting in this story is how history has made it impossible to ignore what was done to the land in North Georgia. Once a land of wild rivers, North Georgia is now broken with dams and human-made bodies of water that change the ecosystem. 
Once mm-hmm. a land that belonged to indigenous people is now buried under the water, making recovery of lost culture impossible. And that was Lake Lanier. That oof. There's a lot of bad energy around that lake. A um, lot. With all of all of that. Yeah, there was some stuff yeah. I couldn't even fit in, and there, there, there are so many deaths. So many deaths. There were there was one where there were like seven people who died in like one week or something like mm-hmm. that, and it was it's bad. Yeah, and they say um, I found an article that said that it's not that the danger isn't becoming worse; it's just that the amount of people the amount like, of people going there is large. Yeah, they're like the amount of people, the more accidents we're gonna have, and yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah. Okay, well, if. You're good to go, because I'm, like, exhausted and my eyes are... Yes. Okay. Uh, If you all enjoyed that, if not, please, even if you didn't enjoy it, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Myths Misfortune, or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. And please, please, please check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. Our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And we have once again reached the time where I implore you to rate, review, subscribe. Why do I talk like this every time? I don't know. You want to be the mysterious shopkeep, apparently. <laughs> is that what that voice is? I don't yes. think that voice is. Am I a mysterious shopkeep hiding you... in your computer? I don't know. In your computer and in your phone. Or your phone or your podcast app. <laughs> Check us out on your favorite podcast app. Am I okay. in your ears? I don't Am know. I in your brain? Am I in your brain? Okay, we gotta go. <laughs> okay, Goodbye. yeah. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>